Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of CanardCast, a podcast for rattan design and rattan-inspired canard aircraft. CanardCast is a production of the Canard Owners and Builders Association, and information on how to join will be provided at the end of this CanardCast. Good day, and thank you for listening to this very first episode of CanardCast. I'm your host today, Izzy, and today we'll speak with our very own and much-loved Long Easy driver, Terry Schubert. An Ohio resident, Terry is the former owner of an Aronka Chief and a Piper Cherokee. Forty-four years ago, Terry witnessed Dick Rutan land November 7 Echo Zulu at Oshkosh and watched hundreds of excited EAAers running up to the plane to get a close-up look at the future. The experience changes world. Sometime after, Terry's wife purchased him a set of Long Easy plans, and in his summers off from teaching high school students, Terry completed his 0235 Long Easy November Niner Tango Sierra in three and a half years. 2,500 hours later and countless cross-country flights spanning the entire United States, Canada, and the Bahamas, Terry is now using his Long Easy as pilot and citizen scientist. Terry's work provides data to support research into the causes of harmful algae blooms affecting freshwater systems in the Great Lakes and around the central states. Terry is well known in the Canard community for his steadfast and reliable leadership of the Central States Association newsletter for more than 30 years. Terry originally took over Central States Association newsletter from Arnie Ash and continued to evolve the membership growth to include worldwide coverage. Last year, Terry passed the torch on to Michael Beasley and Rye Florin to continue to evolve the Central States mission with the Canard Owners and Builders Association, also known as COBA. Welcome, everybody. My name's Izzy, and this is our first Canard cast. And today, our guest is Terry Schubert. Uh, Terry is one of the original folks, uh, was there at the beginning in 1977 when their Very Easy first showed up at Oshkosh. And uh, welcome, Terry. Thanks for joining us today. We're looking forward to having you speak with us. Well, thanks, Izzy. I appreciate the opportunity to do this. It uh, does make me feel like I just crawled out of a cave coming from the original. <laughs> but that, what the heck? It's been a it's been a wonderful go, and uh, it kind of all centers around the, the the project of building the airplane and meeting the people. And there have been a lot of firsts as as I look back on all that. Uh, I guess the, the most important first was the first time I ever saw a canard airplane in flight. And that was at Oshkosh about 44 years ago. Dick Rutan had just flown in the prototype Volkswagen, powered uh, very easy, and uh, it changed my whole world. It was fast, economical, stall resistant, corrosion resistant, and it was comfortable with long range. I really liked that with the my kids living out in Seattle, and it was a home built using modern materials and fabrication techniques. And since I love to build things, it was just kind of like a dream come true. I still get goosebumps remembering Dick's Landing and the solid human wave of hundreds of EAAers running to get a close look up at, at the future. We were hooked. And just to add topping to the cake was the personal integrity of the Rutans. Bird announced that they were going to set a world distance record the very next day. Well, we kind of thought, yeah, that's just more hot air. We'd, we'd been around enough of the BD organization promises, and we knew what promises were worth. 
But the next day, Dick took off, flew the closed course record flight, and did indeed set a new class record. We thought those guys are gods. They told what they were going to do, and then they actually up and did it. Someday, Bert and Dick will hopefully do a canard cast and a story that should be told. And I don't think very many people have, have ever heard it is to have them tell you about the midnight engine change during the hours before the world record flight was made. It's amazing what they, they went through to make sure that their word was going to be good. Wow. That's something I definitely hadn't heard that story before. Well, uh, We'll uh, see if Mike Mike Beasley may be getting a chance to uh, interview with them uh, here in the near future. So we'll, uh, I'll make sure I pass that uh, question along to him. We'll see if they answer. It seems like the Rutans are lately they're uh, becoming more open about some some of those experiences. So it might be a good might be a good conversation. So um, it's 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 my understanding that you uh, spent a fair amount of your professional career as a school teacher. And as we know, our school teachers are woefully underfunded in the uh, world today and wanted to uh, just get some insight into uh, what it took to to build an aircraft uh, on a school teacher's salary. Well, that's an interesting point, especially when you stop and think about the what it costs today to build one of these airplanes and and all that sort of thing. Uh, I was very fortunate that that my wife Jan had bought me a set of long easy plans. She knew where my soft spot was and where I really wanted to go and just needed a little shove off the cliff to get me to, to start in on it. And uh, so once I had the plans, I purchased the materials for that education chapter, which was really an important thing to do because the whole airplane is going to be built with those skills. And if you don't learn the skills correctly, you're not going to have an airplane that's a lightweight performer like Bert had designed. And since all of the composite technology was pretty much brand new to us, we all sort of learned together. And uh, at that time, Mike and uh, Bert were going to uh, forums that they'd set up at various places around the world. That's another thing that's probably not really well known. And uh, they would meet with people and, and show people how to, how to build these airplanes. And it was such an ingenious uh, way for these giving people to, uh, to, to explain the new process so that everybody could be on board together and we all had a chance of building good, safe, well-performing airplanes at a reasonable cost. And when, we were, when I was looking at the plans, I saw that uh, there, there were a lot of metal parts that were required and all of those were kind of expensive. And I looked at them and I thought, well, I can, I think I can make those parts and learn some skills. I already knew how to write a check, so I really didn't need to practice that anymore. But I was kind of limited as to, to uh, my experiences with, with machining and welding and whatnot. So I had to learn those skills. And so I, I ended up getting a couple other builders and said that if they bought the materials, I'd make three sets of all the metal parts and I'd get a, a set for my troubles at no extra cost and they'd get much less expensive parts that were even corrosion proofed. However, to keep me honest, they got first pick of the finished parts 
it took me about a year to develop the skills and made all that, but it didn't cost me anything. And now I have over 4,500 hours on those parts. So evidently they seem to be passing the, the test of time. And then when it got time to add the engine, that's always a big, big money pit. I saw an O235 for sale on an Oshkosh bulletin board in Western Iowa. The seller wanted just 600 bucks for it. Good deal. But the wrinkle was it had been sitting on a chicken coop for 20 years. <laughs> that wasn't <laughs> such a good deal. <laughs> and it had no carburetor, alternator, mags, and it was pretty much stripped down. Even the induction pipes were rusted through. You could see daylight through those puppies. Oh, my goodness. And so I ended up having uh, receipts for less than 100 bucks to get that engine going. And the secret was my twin brother, Larry, and uh, he was my secret weapon on this chicken coop engine. His goal was to have an engine that would run well for 100 hours. I didn't want it overhauled as a new engine and a new pilot and a new airplane. It just seemed like too many new things that were untried. But he was a first-class scrounger, Cessna flight test engineer, an A&P, and a genius airplane builder. Six months later, the O235 looked like new, and he even built an engine mount that was several pounds lighter than the planned spec rock mount. At first flight with a new Navcom, Transponder, Loran, and Great American Prop, which was the hot ticket at the time, I had just $12,000 invested. <laughs> now it costs that much to have an easy painted. Wow. Yeah, that's true. Definitely, uh, definitely the cost of things have gone up. Uh, earlier, you mentioned the, um, the, the, some of the safety features of our aircraft. And uh, I know we talked earlier, you wanted to discuss some, some items related to the nose gear and particularly approach to landing with the nose gear. What can you tell us about that? Oh, dear. You guys do know the Achilles heel questions to ask, don't you? Yes, I have landed nose gear up, and unfortunately, more than once, I guess I'm a slow learner. Perhaps the most memorable was when I did that on runway 18 at Oshkosh, however. It was, it was a typical summertime, hot, humid day, and Jan and I were making the first Oshkosh flight in the new Long Easy, and the weather was was about a thousand foot ceiling with a headwind and it was hot and humid and bumpy all the way from Cleveland. Jan was in the back and wearing just a bra and panties to stay cooler. That may not be, <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's not exactly approved flight apparel, but who'd know? I certainly didn't know. I was watching for traffic and radio towers and just trying to survive the uncomfortable conditions. At Oshkosh, I entered the pattern for 2-7, and thankfully that put the wind on my nose because there was quite a bit of wind. And at that point, I'd been cut out of the Congo line from Fisk several times, and I was hot and tired, and I'd had the gear up and down a couple times as they were landing mostly on 2-7, and I got waved off as I didn't have the spacing they wanted. Finally, I was on short final for 2-7 with good spacing, and thought the landing was made. Ha, silly me. The pilot in front of me stopped. He just stopped on the runway. I didn't know if he was rubbernecking or broke something or what, but he wasn't moving, and I still was. 
The controller wanted to save the day and told me to turn immediately for short final on runway 18. I did and was immediately in a strong right crosswind, not my favorite position. I always looked down at the bright spot in the gear window to assure that the gear's down when I was about to touch down. This time I didn't. I was distracted by the runway change and the resulting strong crosswind. And just as the mains came down and the nose went through the horizon, I knew I had closed the runway at the world's busiest airport. Congratulations. As I coasted to a... Huh? Go, go ahead. I'm, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> As I coasted to a stop in the strong smell of the metal skid plate and very hot epoxy, I yelled to Jan to get out and off the runway as soon as I opened the canopy was stopped. And I wanted to do that as fast as I could so that they could keep the runway landing. She yelled, oh, I censored. But I had bigger problems and didn't pay any attention. Some security guy came running out and bent to lift the nose as I was getting out. I yelled, don't touch, as he gave me a look of disdain that said, you must be the world's stupidest pilot. He stuck his hand under the nose as I was yelling, no, no, and I could almost hear the sizzle sound and smell the cooked skin. As I pushed the long easy off the runway, I looked for Dan, who was standing next to the red one Volkswagen driven, of course, by none other than EAA's founder, Paul Poberesne. Jan had no shoes, was holding her shirts, shorts in one hand and trying to get her blouse on with the other as thousands watched. Yep, that was a memorable landing. Oh, my goodness. What Paul a story. Was, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was uh, memorable. <laughs> Paul was always a class act, though. And I learned later he gave Jan a ride to parking and told her how badly I'd be feeling and that it wouldn't be nearly as expensive to repair as when he did the same thing on the same runway in his Mustang. Thanks, Paul. It's good that he was there to console your wife, sure. Yeah, yeah and, I, and, and I needed a little bit too for my stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was the sounds like the lowest that uh, November nine or Tango Sierra uh, has been. How about the uh, how about the highest? You have a placard on your fuselage that talks about a world altitude record. What uh, what can you tell us about that? Well, that was another interesting tidbit that that originated at, at on an Oshkosh fly-in. I'd gone to an Oshkosh forum, and it was presented by uh, Air Force Academy Norm Howell who's now a flight test for uh, uh, Boeing. And uh, he was based in Germany at the time, flying the F-4 Wild Weasels. And his the subject of his forum was, he told how he'd set a world record in his quickie. And that's a story in itself that you, you, you really ought to, ought to get him to talk about, even though it's not exactly a, a canard airplane. But quickie's related, what the heck. Anyway, he'd set it a, a uh, record in the quickie and he was looking to attempt a record altitude in a long easy if he could find a lightweight one. Weight was important because the records are set in different weight classes and he was planning to get the record in the C1A class. That's a record that's uh, set by gross weight and it has to be between 500 kilograms or 
about 1,102 pounds maximum. Uh, my long easy was just over 800 pounds at the time, so it fit his needs, even though it was low compression engine and with magneto ignition. That was before Klaus got to work on me. <laughs> we talked and agreed on a date for him to come back from Germany and get my long easy. While in Germany, he set up a pressure demand oxygen system, a parachute, dual recording barographs, and altimeters and flight suit. He hand carried all this stuff as the plan was to fly via military transport to Cleveland, Ohio, pick up my long easy, get checked out, and depart for Colorado Springs. He had chosen Colorado Springs for a, a, a base of operation for the record attempt, as a lot of his Air Force Academy buddies were still out there and they were going to crew for his record attempt. At the very last minute, Norm's military flights were canceled and they had to go via commercial airlines, Germany to London to New York and finally to Cleveland. And of course, he was hand carrying the chute, oxygen and all other kinds of portable equipment as he didn't want to lose it in the baggage claim area. Of course, there always seems to be a problem with these adventures. <laughs> and this was no exception. All of this was going on about a week after the terrorist destruction of an airliner over Lockerbie, Scotland. I'm sure you remember that. And all the security folks were logically on very high alert. And when Norm got to London, and was at the departure gate to go to New York, the, all that gear he was hand carrying attracted security people's attention. Down on the floor with guns in his ears and lots of amped up yelling went poor innocent Norm. After several hours in a basement cage, things finally got sorted out and he was allowed to board for New York. However, he was still carrying all his carry-on gear, parachute, oxygen, and so forth. And he got in line in New York to go to Cleveland. Guess what? All that gear attracted security's attention. And down on the floor with guns in his ears and lots of amped up yelling went poor innocent Norm again. After several hours in the basement cage, Norm noticed that no security folks were there and found the cage door was unlocked. He picked up his carry-on gear and headed for the Cleveland departure line. Nobody said anything, and he made it into Cleveland many hours late. He took my long easy to Colorado and met with his friends. After several attempts, but unfortunately without any wave lift, he set a new C1A world record altitude of horizontal flight of 25,160 feet. It, it seems the record was the easiest part of the operation. That record has been superseded several times, twice by long easies. The design is really uh, an inherent altitude gainer. And uh, so the biggest issue was keeping them light to get the performance that Bert had, had uh, designed into it. Dave Timms uh, from uh, California uh, had a, a yellow long easy November 121 Delta Tango, and he got the record pushed up to 30,500 feet with an 0290. And then Jim Price came along in his long easy 
Juliet Papa with 0320 power and Canard VGs got up to over 35,000 feet. That incredible record was set with the 1,102 pound gross weight. I know he was on an aggressive diet, but I still think he had to cut off body parts to get his weight down that far. As with all stories, yeah, it was pretty amazing. He he had uh, drilled holes in just about everything you can imagine to cut down weight on the structure, and uh, it was it was amazing. Um, but his his story of how he was able to get the airplane to fly at a lower indicated airspeed than the canard stalled at uh, is a story in itself. And usually there's a story that that doesn't get told in adventures like that. And in this case, Jim's canard vortex generator development and altitude flight is another story that would make a great canard cast. Well, we uh, will put him on the list as well. I appreciate these these follow up uh, opportunities. We're going to uh, we're going to take advantage of that. That's quite a quite a. A record with that altitude record, and uh, you know, of course, um, Rutan has to come along and, and and build Spaceship One and just make it impossible for anybody <laughs> else to, <laughs> to beat anything. But uh, yeah, we love it. We love being a part of that. So, I I have a few more questions for you. Tell us, uh, you know, there's a lot of builders out there that have a, a lot of nightmares about their first flight. I'm included in that bunch, and wanted to hear if you could. Tell us a little bit about your first flight in uh, Niner Tango Sierra. Well, um, I had the airplane finished and assembled at home, and then I took it all apart and moved it out to Lorain County Airport on the west side of Cleveland. And the FAA came out and did their airworthiness inspection. And all of a sudden, I discovered there was the airplane. All the paperwork was done. I'd done a few accelerate to rotation speed, raise the nose just off the ground, and then stop events. So it seemed like it was tracking straight, and the ailerons sort of worked as well as I could see. And everything was, was looking pretty good. Static fuel flow without the fuel pump on was about 14 gallons an hour or so, so I knew that was that was okay too. And I'd had several knowledgeable folks look everything over and any of the squawks were resolved. The weight and balance was well within the first flight box, and there were 10 gallons of fuel in each tank. And I'd briefed the line crew, and they were ready with fire extinguishers. <laughs> anyway, I'd flown my friends long easy, so I knew what I should expect, and that was a real godsend to be able to, uh, in those days, to find somebody that had another long easy was amazing but to find somebody that was kind enough to uh, allow you to fly solo their airplane was just, just clear over the top. And uh, so anyway, this, this, uh, the weather was Caview, and there was a light breeze right down the runway. Uh, all the run-up checks were good, and I had no excuse to stay on the runway, so it was time to fly. I added full power. The engine went smoothly up to the expected RPM. There was no yaw in any direction. And in a few seconds, I was off the ground and climbing straight and fast. At about 200 feet, I started to smell hot metal. And at 400 feet, I turned on crosswind 
and experienced an even stronger hot metal smell. That was unsettling. The instruments showed normal indication, but I thought I was on fire. My head was whipping around looking for flames like Goose looked for Top Gun bogeys. I turned downwind with the intention of pulling power off and landing when I got to a good position. And presto, I no longer smelled any hot metal. It was like somebody had flipped a switch. The flight was smooth with no hot metal smell. Instruments were acceptable and all was right with the world. I was still scared though, because I didn't know how long it was gonna keep acting so nicely. But at least I no longer thought I was on fire. I decided to stay above the airport for one full circuit. All went well on downwind base. And when I turned to final, I saw my fire problem. There was a brown streak in the air about a half mile wide running parallel to the runway and coming from the steel mills five miles from the airport. No wonder it smelled like hot metal. It was hot metal, but just at a steel mill and not in my little plastic airplane. I, I, I started to relax and began enjoying the flight. Everything was doing as it should. The airplane flew hands off, straight and level. The ball was centered. I climbed and descended and changed throttle settings. All seemed to be as it should be. After about an hour, I decided to land, but I couldn't get the long easy to slow down. At idle throttle, the engine slowed right down, but the airplane kept the same speed. Wow, it didn't have drag like my Cherokee did. <laughs> yeah, a lot of differences between that and the Cherokee. After thinking I'd never get it slowed down enough to land, I put it in a steep bank, pulled a couple Gs, and the speed came right down. And I was able to make an uneventful landing. And yes, I did smell hot metal when I was on final and back into that brown smoke again. Wow. It sounds like inspiration for your later activities with uh, your environmental studies. We'll, uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. So sounded like you were imagining maybe an engine failure or some kind of a, some kind of a you know, other type of failure. Have you ever actually had an engine failure in flight? Uh, no. It wasn't. It wasn't a failure. It was a. It was a pilot failure that precipitated an engine failure. I had. Uh, I'd visited Rob Martinson. He had a really fast, very easy in uh, in uh, Colorado, and I had departed west from Denver's Jeffcoat Airport. Jeffco Airport, and I was going to land in Lake County, Colorado. It seems that Lake County's Leadville Airport gives certificates to pilots who land there, commemorating the landing at the highest elevation airport in the United States. Its elevation is a lofty 9,929 feet MSL. The air was unusually smooth with little wind and very low humidity. The visibility was just unbelievable and the mountain view was breathtaking. As I approached the airport, I heard a Learjet reporting the blind that it was impound and it seemed we'd be landing at the same time, but on opposite ends of the same runway. Being the wonderful magnanimous pilot that I am, <laughs> I told him to land first and when he was clear, I'd land. I throttled way back to idle, did a couple of 360s as I watched him land. 
just as he cleared the runway, I had turned final and was perhaps a little bit low. I moved the throttle forward, but didn't notice any change in the engine sound. I nervously added more and more throttle and then switched fuel tanks and checked carb heat. Then I noticed the engine was really quiet and the tachometer was on the peg, the zero peg. I pulled to best glide speed and hoped it would be good enough to make the runway. Thankfully, the God who watches out for idiots was on duty and I made a wonderful landing right on the numbers and rolled just a few hundred feet. I tried to restart the engine on the runway, but after about 50 blades at that altitude, I was panting like crazy in the thin air. With a lot of rest breaks, I wheezed and wobbled along easy uphill to the ramp. I parked the easy on its nose and flopped down exhausted with a blood pressure probability in stroke range and with blue fingernails and a beet red face. Wow. I got my certificate though. <laughs> yeah, I got that certificate. It's hanging right here on the wall. And it was a reminder that setting full carb heat doesn't mean you'll be getting a temperature rise unless you add power to keep the manifold heater warm. Oh boy. That's uh that's quite a story. I um so you had carb ice. That was a carb ice failure. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to believe too because the visibility was great. There were no clouds. Sky was just dark blue, and it was just an amazing time. But it, uh, for some reason, it decided that it. I must have had the idle set a little bit too low, and you know I may have bumped the mixture up richer when I was going to land, and you know all kinds of things that may have entered in. But all I knew was that it was. It was time to be a glider pilot. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's um, uh, that's there's some interesting elements to that story. That's uh, that's quite uh, quite good that you were able to make the the, the runway without any issues. So <laughs> I've got. Uh, yeah, that was a long haul. Go ahead. No, I'm just uh, just admiring the landing there. So um, we've got uh, a little bit of time left. We have two questions that I wanted to, to ask. We've got, um, one was for our, you know, I, I consider myself a second generation canard builder. My, my father built a very easy, uh, in the seventies. And, uh, so I, I grew up with the smell of Bondo and epoxy down the hall from my bedroom. Oh, yeah, what so a wonderful way to grow up. Takes, takes me right back. You know, don't step on those, don't step on those guide strings, son, <laughs> step over them. You know? So, uh, so there's also my son who's, who's going to be a third generation, at least a canard flyer. He may, he may decide to build one as he gets older, but, uh, what do you have to, to share with the canard community about, um, you know, the newer, the newer folks just getting into this who weren't around for the beginning who have to kind of play catch up? Well, it's, you know, all of this has to come from the heart. You have to be uh, really in love with the whole idea about building a, a high performance airplane like this. And now so many airplanes are out in kit form and it costs a lot of money to produce a kit. And uh, so uh, I think a lot of newbies uh, tend to be intimidated, intimidated by the new super canards with over $100,000 invested. And you really don't need to have that kind of money invested to get 90% of, of the canard capability. 
Um, I have about 4,500 hours on my airplane and all of the flying has been strictly VFR. While I'm instrument rated, I never especially liked flying instruments. So Nine Tango Sierra doesn't even have an attitude indicator on board. And in spite of all of that, I've been able to make a lot of trips to uh, all kinds of places around the United States, including three trips to, uh, to uh, uh, Alaska and out into the Bahamas and whatnot. So, you know, you can, you can get an awful lot out of an airplane and not have to have full IFR capability. So I guess the new guy should try and keep his airplane simple and light as Bert wanted it. And uh, there are a lot of bargains out there in O235 airplanes with even the old GU canard. And if you have to have a full IFR glass panel, fly the old steam gauges for 500 hours first and see if you'd have to have $10,000 plus in glass, or would you have more fun by buying fuel to fly it? And when buying an airplane, get some knowledgeable canard guy to help look it over before you buy it. He doesn't need to be an A&P, as canards are different from Cessnas. However, if it looks like it's a mess, then it probably is, so don't buy it, because there are some real dogs out there and you don't want to get tied into those. I'm amazed at, at what airplanes people will fall in love with, and then they're stuck because nobody else wants to buy it, and they're afraid to fly it. That's, uh, that's sage advice. I think there's a lot of, lot of uh, younger builders and, and, and even more owners out there that are picking up canards that are second or third owner-type machines and may not have had the best maintenance to go along with them. I'm sure our uh, community member, Mark Zeitlin, can tell us a little bit about some of the condition inspections that he's done. Yeah, you're right. He's run into a lot of different airplanes. And since he has the credentials and the experience and whatnot to do a super job, why he gets called into a lot of these. And some of them are, are pretty scary, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, definitely good to have a trusted advisor there. Well, we have uh, yep. one last question. This is probably the most important question, most, most relevant question for, for you and, and what you're working on these days. Um, some folks may already know that you're working, um, working on providing environmental studies information to uh, interested uh, agencies and parties regarding algae blooms in the Great Lakes and other places. And uh, it sounds like you've gotten involved with some other, other types of organizations as well to provide that information. And you're using your long easy to fly those missions. What can you tell our listeners about uh, those, those environmental missions you've been using your, your uh, uh, Niner Tango Sierra to, uh, to fly? Well, um, after you've flown your your long AZ, in spite of it being the world's best airplane, after 4,000 hours, well, you kind of get to a point where I've been, eh, I've been to all the, the hamburger places I wanted to go to and all the major fly-ins except maybe one or two. And so my eyes started to wander. And about that time, I ended up being put into a situation where I was uh, sharing a hangar with uh, Dr. Rafat and Sari, who was uh, chief scientist at NASA Glenn here in Cleveland. And uh, his, uh, uh, he was very interested in, in 
uh, the growing problems with toxic harmful aloe blooms called HABs in Lake Erie. As a matter of fact, they're, they're uh, uh, putting a lot of environmental pressure throughout uh, the entire world. Uh, you've probably all heard of, of uh, red tide in Florida. Well, it's the same thing as what we have in Lake Erie, except our stuff is kind of green color. Alaska, it's clear. Uh, as you go to different places, it seems to, to uh, have some different characteristics, but essentially it's a, it's a toxic thing that's uh, killing our water supplies. But the phenomenon is largely caused by agricultural fertilizer runoff and it's not controlled or even completely understood. And scientists need more data to answer questions from water control authorities, legislators, and universities with environmental programs. Um, the, the, the present investigation to collect data is normally done by uh, people that are paid money and uh, there, there's a shortage of that. If you collect data, you don't have any money left to study it. So uh, one of the things that Dr. Ansari was pressing for was a thing called citizen science, where, where John Q. Public, like, like all of you that are listening to this, and uh, even myself, were, uh, were capable of collecting data and passing it on so that the uh, uh, the, the uh, HABs people, the scientists, could be able to interpret it. And anyway, uh, the we decided we'd take a look at that. And previously, the data was taken mainly by satellite. And that's really expensive. It offers limited resolution. It's useless in cloudy weather. And it's not really easy to reposition it if you want to investigate a certain defined area other than what you'd been looking at. And there are other limitations too, but mainly it's it's a money-related thing. So some use was also made of surplus military carrier-capable aircraft by NASA, but you know those are old warbirds, and to try to get to fly old warbirds is really expensive, and they just didn't have the budget to do that. So it seemed that general aviation pilots could work as unpaid data collectors called citizen scientists, and they could collect data to supply scientists investigating whatever issues you're interested in, in looking at. So why should they expend valuable scientist time and resources collecting data if somebody else can do it? So the plan would be to patrol and collect data on Lake Erie's western basin. That's a piece of geography that runs from Cleveland to Toledo and north to Detroit. And um, that's the lowest or the shallowest part of Lake Erie and the most affected by the harmful algae blooms. I had attached uh, Garmin Verb cameras to my Long Easy, flew the route taking one image every five seconds in uh, uh, both infrared and red-green-blue spectrums. At the time, the VERB was the only camera capable of recording lat long and other data required. Our 2014 data revealed an alarming HABs growth in the western basin near the Toledo water intake. 
later that summer while returning from Oshkosh, I discovered that the entire Toledo water system was shut down due to toxic HABs entering Toledo's municipal water intake. So our prophecy of what we were seeing in our lake uh, came to fruit, if you will, uh, that you know it really was a, a nasty thing that was causing death to fish and, and uh, burning skin on humans and things like that. Our citizen science efforts are continuing, uh, mainly in the HABs active summers, as there isn't a whole lot of action going on for the winter six months of the year. The data continues to be taken by Dr. Sari's and Sari's airplane and my long easy. And we're now getting requests from water control and environmental authorities, including universities, Coast Guard, and the EPA as to uh, what they'd like for us to be recording and what they want to investigate. And the Long Easy is ideal for this mission with its range and efficiency. Uh, a few years later, Dave Nelson uh, joined the effort by patrolling the headwaters of the Mississippi River in his Velocity RG. Perhaps you may have seen the TV program River Monsters in which his data collection efforts were presented. It's uh, interesting that uh, we're able to, to see the HABs uh, growing in rivers as well as giant lakes. And so there's just all kinds of things that, that need further research. But our efforts will continue this summer and hopefully legislators will do their jobs and set enforcement standards to control the blight. Uh, I'm sure that the present uh, virus this year is going to cause uh, a lot of competition for money and attention, but who knows? It's uh, very important. Uh, the problem goes on and we need to do something to uh, arrest it. It's time to pass time, actually, to stop the damage to the largest freshwater source in the world our Great Lakes. That's it. Yeah, well, citizen scientist Barry Schubert, thank you so much for um, your time today. We appreciate you joining our, our uh, Canard cast. And uh, we're going to publish this with uh, some of the information on the Canard Owners and Builders Association Forum. And uh, we'll add some of the additional detail that uh, we didn't have time to talk about today. So uh, people can look up more information about this uh, algae bloom. And we'll redirect everybody to uh, that are, that's interested to the um, to the sites and the, 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 the data centers that they have. So I may follow up with you, Terry, on that. So again, thank you so much for your time today. I think that concludes the questions that we wanted to cover today. And we appreciate everybody joining. Um, Thank you, Terry. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Fly safely. You too, Terry. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Canard fans. You've been listening to CanardCast, a production of the Canard Owners and Builders Association. I'm Mike Beasley, the editor of the Central States Association magazine, which is a quarterly publication of the association. The Canard Owners and Builders Association serves enthusiasts of rutan design and rutan-inspired canard aircraft by providing an online repository for photos, articles, news, forum conversations, 
canard cast, as well as a searchable member list so members can connect with other canard builders and flyers. I invite you to join us by going to www.canardowners.com and click on the member sign-up link at the top of the page. Dues are $39 for one year or $70 for two years. We also offer a digital-only version for $25 a year. Finally, if you enjoyed this CanardCast, please consider donating toward or sponsoring future CanardCasts. Just go over to anchor.fm, that's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M, and click on the donations link. Well, thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in for future CanardCasts.